RAC's post-op podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. Technology in surgery continues to evolve in leaps and bounds, particularly the advances of robotics. A little under 20 years ago, Professor Tony Costello performed the first radical prostatectomy using robotics in Australia. Since then, he has performed 2,500 robotic procedures and has trained dozens of international robotic surgeons at the International Medical Robotics Academy, or IMRA, an institution he founded and of which he is currently Executive Director and CEO. RAX has now partnered with IMRA to deliver the Foundations of Robotic Surgery online introductory course, which provides foundational theory and principles required to safely perform robotic surgical procedures. This course is the first of its kind to have surgeons instructing surgeons on how to use robotics in surgery. Chris Ashmore asks Professor Tony Costello, when and why did surgeons start using robotics in the operating theatre? Robotics clinically started around the year 2000, so it's this century, and it replaced the minimally invasive surgery of laparoscopy. And the reason it did that over a period of, say, seven or eight years was that robotics provided a platform of a depth perception. So you had a three-dimensional view in 10 times magnification, and the surgeon controlled the telescope and had his hand movements telestrated via surgical manipulators, which are instruments, to provide access to very difficult places inside the abdomen in a bloodless field. So all of the things a surgeon could want were provided by this technology to improve minimally invasive surgery, which uh, laparoscopy had replaced open surgery in many procedures, and now robotics came and replaced minimally invasive laparoscopic surgery. It took the principles of laparoscopy insufflation with minimal invasion of the patient's abdomen or thorax or wherever it was and um, made life better for the patient, made the surgical job easier. Well, you're a pioneer in robotics, uh, robotic surgery in Australia. What got you interested in robotics and how did the International Medical Robotics Academy start? Well, I'm basically a 44 years surgeon And it was always my view that what used to be, if it wasn't good enough, should be questioned and replaced. So it was clear to me our outcomes weren't as good as they could be. I liked technology. I was very involved in the application of laser therapy, laser heat to prosthetic obstruction in the 90s. I did a thesis on that for Melbourne University. Laparoscopy I embraced. And then when I saw a prototype in the late 90s in the U.S., where these machines are generally made, I thought this was like a light bulb moment for me. So I got very involved early. We had one of the earliest machines provided by the company in 2003. We were our number five machine in the world. I think they've sold nearly 10,000 machines since then. Uh, so we had a, an advantage because in Melbourne we were pioneering it in that there was no textbook or video of how you do the surgery. We had to work it out. And by working it out, we also worked out how you teach it. So I've been talking to the College of Surgeons for five years or so, and COVID intervened. But in that time, we've been able to develop a curriculum, which I think is going to be the program for the training of the modern surgeon, modern meaning millennial surgery. So millennials have a very different 
attitude to how they're taught or the way they want to be taught. And surgeons generally are fairly mature when they graduate, so it takes about 15 years to become a surgeon, uh, med school plus 10 years. And then so surgeons don't really start practice until they're close to 40 often. So we need to have folks thinking the way modern students think and provide them with a platform which they're going to accept. And I think this is what we're doing here at IMRA with the College of Surgeons of Australia and New Zealand is really groundbreaking because the college here is the first surgical accrediting body to embrace a new way of teaching surgery. Can you elaborate with that? So you've, Rax and IMRA have partnered to deliver the course and you say that, uh, I suppose, the younger generation, the way they want to absorb information and learn is different perhaps than uh, the older generation. How is this course different? I can give you the contrast. So when I was trained and I have families who are in surgical training, so it's not much different, that you learn surgery by being at the patient's bedside and being apprenticed to a surgeon who teaches you and prior to that would perhaps work on a cadaver or a live animal occasionally as a learning experience, but they're very sort of haphazard, uh, those experiences. So surgery is taught by apprenticeship. It's what we call or has been the Halsteadian model where it was quite an abusive model when it first started in 1904 and Johns Hopkins and US professor William Halstead started the modern residency of surgery concept, residency meaning living in the hospital for seven years with no holidays. All surgeons were male. Uh, They weren't allowed to be married and if they wanted to be married or have a holiday, they got fired. So it was a brutal system. I trained in the United States in the 1980s and not much had changed from the Halsteadian approach, to be honest with you. It was very harsh in terms of hours worked and expectation and there was no sort of uh, enthusiasm or encouragement for the learning process. So fast forward to 2022, I think modern students of surgery would not tolerate or don't tolerate that approach. They want to be taught not in lecture theatres. They want small video illustration of what we're talking about, plus maybe short bursts of, of dialogue with lots of assessments along the way. So assessment to proficiency. So they want a linear curriculum where they're assessed on a regular basis but in a friendlier way. And um, I think it's obvious, well, it's well known now that you learn much better if you're not in a hostile environment. And Qantas, who work with us and are on our curriculum committee, have taught us that, you know, they teach in simulators. They don't teach in the aeroplane. They've completely changed. So that when a pilot's ready to fly, they just can get into the seat of a 737 and then fly it with the training they have in the simulator. But the training is in a very non-threatening and friendly approach to the pedagogy is one of encouragement and advice. And then if you've reached a milestone, you proceed. You don't have to wait for everybody else to catch up. Incredible. What do you think that this course means then for the surgical profession? I think it's a breakthrough. I think that um, it's very difficult. So as I said, surgeons are often quite uh, well advanced in years to close to 40 when they start so and we're a very conservative profession so and why would you change if it's taking you 15 years to learn it why would you go back and try another way so it's very difficult to change practice and surgeons and one are innately conservative and it can be threatening so I think that 
The impact of this will be that uh, we'll have a much faster way of teaching surgery. Hopefully then that could, down the track, shorten the training period. Uh, we certainly have much better metrics of assessing proficiency. So one of the things that simulation does, it allows us in a non-operating room way, not on a patient, to assess proficiency with a lot of metrics which are now becoming available to assess how far along the track the surgeon is in their learning. And what about patients? How does the evolution of robotics, how does that help the outcome or the benefits of patients? Well, I'm a patient, potentially, and you are too. <laughs> and I have been on the end of some of these procedures. So the thesis that I promote is that if we teach the surgeons in a better way to proficiency and we can measure it, surely then we'll lower the complication rate and therefore the patient will be the beneficiary of improved education methods. And, you know, at the moment, the published complication rate for major surgery is 17%. That is a readmission to hospital of 17% in 30 days after surgery. So that's one, it's awful for the patient to have a complication, but it's also very expensive to try and fix these complications when patients are readmitted to hospital. So I think there's a patient benefit on an individual basis and there's a community or societal benefit in an economic sense. Are robots costly for hospitals? Yes, and you've hit hit the really big problem because identified a problem here. Because this technology was so novel and so complicated, I mean, uh, this is the original Da Vinci machine is a beautiful piece of technology. It's a magnificent computer and it's been very hard for other competitors to make similar machines of comparable quality. Uh, One, because Intuitive Surgical, who make the Da Vinci robot, had all the patents and until the patents expired, which was in recent years, there was no competitor. So Da Vinci has been a surgical manufacture a monopoly for robots for 20 years and that enabled them to be the worst face of capital in that they went from a startup company to a multi-billion dollar company and they're predicted to be multiple billions in the next five years because the robotic market's going to expand. But what's happened is now we have competitors, which I think is healthy and I think good for Da Vinci, that they will come and force the price down so that at the present time, there are very few robots in Australian public hospitals where the registrars train. So not only do we have a lack of access for patients in public hospitals to high-technology surgery, but we have an access problem for training all our surgical trainees in public system where there are very few robots. I think there are 80, maybe more 90 now, robots in Australia and New Zealand, and only 10 of them would be in the public system. In the United States, there are over 6,000 robots. And um, my view is that in five years' time, there'll be a robot, at least in, in every hospital, but there'll be multiple robots in hospitals for multiple different indications so that there are now being manufactured robots that are used for ear, nose and throat surgery, transoral. There are robots that are made specifically for gynecology surgery so that you know, those different specialties will adopt those platforms. So everything's going to change. Mm. Well, five years really isn't that far away. But uh, if we look even further down the track, will robots and AI replace surgeons at at some point? (laughs) The question you're asking is, will surgery be autonomous? Okay, so will will there be a surgeon necessary in the operating room? 
well, he'd be necessary in my, or she would be necessary in my operating room if I'm the patient because their surgery isn't really – there are lots of equivalencies in surgery and aviation in terms of pilots and surgeons, but uh, there are m- many more variables when you're doing an operation on a patient. Every patient is different. Every time you step into a 737, everything is the same. But there are still accidents in the airline industry where the pilot – and I use the example of that guy Sully in, um, on the Hudson River some years ago. He defied the computer because he calculated in his head that there wasn't enough fuel to get back to the takeoff airport and then decided to land on the Hudson River and saved everybody. The computer was telling him to go back to the airport and it was proven in a court that he would have crashed the aeroplane and everyone would have died. And I think you can multiply that for uh, human anatomy and human pathology that you have different... Every time you operate on a patient, the inside's different. So you, you have unique experiences. If you're operating, you have a unique experience every day doing the same operation. But I think that where AI will come in, so I don't think driverless cars are really going to be with us anytime soon for the same reasons, and, and pilotless aeroplanes aren't being contemplated either by the airlines. But where I think, out of, well, where it's being used now is what I was saying before, metrics of proficiency. So you can measure certain key steps of each operation you can break down each robotic surgical procedure be it a colectomy for bowel cancer or be it a radical prostatectomy which is in my field for we broke that up into 10 steps in terms of difficulty so you start with the easier ones and then you progress as the surgeon progresses but you can actually use artificial intelligence algorithms looking at multiple surgeries and then you could use that with an algorithm in the robot software to warn the surgeon if they're going outside an area where they should be it's not safe there or to have just those segments separated out and then uh, measured in terms of a scale of proficiency compared to the norm so i think artificial intelligence yet it will be very useful but i don't think it's going to replace the surgeon well before we go any uh, final thoughts or words of advice perhaps for anyone listening contemplating doing the course well i've just been in ireland I gave a lecture called the Freer Lecture, which was to a general surgical audience and the Royal Society of Medicine, the Irish College, which has two surgical training centres and also is in the quad of College of Surgeons of England, Glasgow and Edinburgh. They've taken it on lock, stock and barrel. I think the other colleges will follow suit in due course. So this is coming out of Melbourne, but I think we can lead it. And I think the college here needs to be congratulated for that. I'm also talking at Harvard medical school in January with a view for them taking on in the med school so I think surgical decisions to become a surgeon will be made earlier at the end of the medical course as they do in the United States and this education will will go into med schools as well as into set training it's a very interesting future I think that we we're just starting the journey of changing the way we teach surgeons Professor Tony Costello RAC's post-op podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. You can reach the Bongiorno National Network on plus 613 9863 3111.